Welcome to Boundless Pursuit, a weekly podcast providing motivation, entertainment, and education to anglers and outdoorsmen. I hope that the stories you'll find here will encourage you to chase your passion more fervently, to open your mind to new opportunities and perspectives. Your engagement and feedback is critical to the growth of this show, and I would love to hear your suggestions on topics or potential guests. You can reach me at boundlesspursuitfishing at gmail.com or at my website, www.boundless-pursuit.com. That's where you'll find all related articles, media, and merchandise. Please remember, the show will gain traction from your support. Be sure to like, comment, and share this podcast to your friends and connections. I'm your host, David Graham. Now let's get on to today's episode. You know, when I first put this podcast together, I put together a long list of anglers and outdoorsmen that I have admired and respected and just had interest in. But the guy you're going to listen to today is probably one of the number one people that I've wanted to hear from. And you will not believe some of the fish that this guy has caught. And while I've got a lot of guests that I've heard from so far or have got lined up uh, going forward, The caliber of the fish that this guy catches are unprecedented. His name is Spencer Wonder, and he is the founder and the owner of Terra Firma Tackle. Now, Spencer specializes in the pursuit of giant fish from land. That is his thing. That is his persona. That is his specialty. Um, And that is essentially the name of his brand, Terra Firma Tackle, which translates to, uh, you know, from shore. So, Spencer catches fish uh, land-based, primarily uh, specializing in sharks. But he doesn't just catch any sharks. The caliber of the fish that this guy pulls are nothing short of outrageous. Just to name off some of the catches that this guy has pulled, you're talking 14-foot tiger sharks, giant hammerheads, thresher sharks, blue sharks, makos, Six gills. He's fishing in California. He's fishing in Florida. He's fishing everywhere in between, in the north, in the south, and even overseas. Not only is he catching sharks, the guy's catching giant Goliath grouper. These enormous sea bass, which I didn't even know existed until I saw his page, because these things look hundreds of pounds. He's caught great white sharks up to 16 feet long from land. But maybe most incredibly, the guy caught a Pacific sleeper shark that was almost 16 feet long. Now, if you know anything about these fish, or if you don't, you're going to learn today. The Pacific sleeper shark is one of, if not the longest-lived animal on the planet. Now, these fish can live to be 500 years old. So for him to have caught one that was almost 16 feet long... You're looking at a fish, to put it in context, that may have been born before George Washington. To me, that is mind-blowing. This is incredible, incredible stuff. But he hasn't just stopped there, and he hasn't really pigeonholed himself into strictly land-based shark fishing. So now he's doing a lot of this sturgeon fishing. Spencer is probably the only guy that I know that has caught close to a dozen, maybe a dozen species of sturgeon. He's caught white sturgeon, green sturgeon, gulf and Atlantic sturgeon, which is basically unheard of. 
And he just recently came back from pursuing sturgeon overseas where he got diamond sturgeon, beluga sturgeon, Siberian sturgeon, among, I don't know, roughly six other species all in one trip, many of which came from the same body of water. The guy is an absolute nomad. He's a savage, and he looks the part. You're going to see he looks like he probably hasn't shaved since he caught his very first fish, but this guy is an unbelievable guy. He is somebody who's really living his passion, working his passion. He's an entrepreneur, a business owner, um, and he's probably one of the best self-marketers of anybody that you're going to see because being that he sells land-based fishing gear, he's using his own gear, and the fish that he catches are really proof that what he does works. Um, you're not going to want to miss this one. This is a really, really interesting and awesome guy. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I think you will too. All right, we're live. I got I got the man, the myth, the legend with me now. I finally get to talk to the guy. I've been seeing all these pictures floating around the internet on. So, Spencer Wonder, what's going on, man? Hey, man, not much, not a whole lot. So, <laughs> in between trips. And, Dude, I you know. did not know where to begin with you. Like, everybody that I have lined up for this show kind of has, like, their thing, like, their shtick. But, like, you, I'm like, where the hell do I begin with this guy? Like some of the stuff that I, I have seen you holding and catching is mind blowing. So it's like I'm gonna try to find my way through all of this, but it's like I don't even know if we got enough time to cover some of the stuff. But um, you know, I, it was I don't know. You stuck out like a sore thumb. I don't know if it's the beard and the long hair or the characteristic look or the fact that you're holding great white sharks, sleeper sharks, those giant sea bass. All these different yeah. huge giant sharks. Lately, it's been all the sturgeon. So when I see a guy like that, I, I always wonder, like, where in the world did this begin? Because I don't know, man, you, you seem pretty deeply entrenched in this world. But I'm always kind of fascinated with people's origin stories. So you got to tell me how how all this fishing started, how the terraforma tackle thing got started. So... I've been entrenched in it since I was a kid, right? So I, I live in, I grew up in Newport Beach, California, which is like a yachty sort of place. There's, I'm actually parked in a marina right now because I'm using their Wi-Fi because my office is under construction. So <laughs> it's crowded by boats and sport fishing. And I grew up doing the, out here we have like head boats is what they call them on the East Coast. We call them party boats. You get like 80 anglers together, they get on a big boat and they go and they fish offshore. And I grew up doing that. And I quickly got dissatisfied with it because I noticed that the only real angler on that boat was the guy driving. I didn't have anything to do with it. I was driving me to the fish. It was like pay lake fishing. It just didn't have the right feel. And so I quickly started to look to something that I could like self-guide. And I tried to own boats and I did commercial fishing and I did all of that. And I never really felt satisfied with that sort of, I couldn't fish as much as I wanted because the cost of owning the boat or the stress of owning the boat, it sucked the fun out of it. And so that drove, drove me to like land-based angling. And then obviously the next logical step then is land-based shark fishing, you know, for the, the biggest game I can get my hand, always been a big game enthusiast offshore. How do I get something like that on land, you know? And so it, it started with spear fishing and that's where Terra from a tackle kind of originated. I bumped a long time ago. I had a partner. I bumped into this young British expat who couldn't work in the States and needed 
source of income. And I was between jobs. Before this, I had a whole career as an academic professor. I taught marine aquarium science for 10 years. And uh, I was in between. I was taking a break from that. And uh, this kid needed a job. And so we started Terra Firma to give him something to do. Ultimately, he wound up not being able to keep up with the pace of growth and stepped away. But and that's kind of where it started was like giving these peer anglers kit that could get make them more successful at what they do. And uh, that was and I, I've also like traveled my whole life, like just as something to do. Like I've always had a I've always wanted to not be where I am. I have this like dissatisfaction with stagnation and I don't want to be where I am ever. I'm always itchy. And so I always find myself in new places. And when I would go, I'd go. I wouldn't always fish, but I would go hang out with people that did fish or I'd read about the place and I would learn things. And so what TFT really is, is like an, an amalgamation of all of these different like tactics I've learned yeah. across the And that's it. <laughs> well, it, it's interesting to me because I just jotted a few things down. Like, okay, it's, it's, you know, sometimes it's, it's stuff's starting to puzzle together a little better. I'm always interested in people like, you know, social media, it's always kind of hard to tell, like, I don't know what people are really about. seems like there's a lot of people out there where it's about, you know, look at me, look what I can do, check out what I did. Um, you know, and it's everybody's personal highlight reel. But, you know, occasionally you'll come across somebody who puts up something interesting and unique and seems to be eager to like genuinely and authentically share that with other people through education, through establishing a business where you can actually offer the hardware that people can use to get it done themselves. And like, I don't know, I, I always kind of gravitate more towards people like that, that are trying to like push the sport forward rather than, I don't know, propel their own name. But the fact that you come from an education background or, or you said you were teaching, that kind of makes sense. So at least I know that in your DNA, there's like an eagerness to, I don't know, educate or, show people what you're passionate about. But, you know, I snoop a lot online, not to sound creepy, but, you know, um, you run in circles of guys that I've been following for a long time. And so, you know, it's, it's just interesting to see people who are, I don't know, all y'all seem like you're cut from the same cloth where you're trying to help each other out, scratch each other's backs, like bring up the, like, like, like I know that you especially, communicate like from a conservation um, standpoint. And I know I appreciate that because, you know, you see these guys will put up a photo of a big fish and the caption is, I don't know, a rap lyric or something. I'm like, well, what the hell is that? I mean, wh where's the story? Like, what? how did you get to this? Like, is this something that's really that meaningful to you? I mean, is this really that casual of a thing that you can put a totally unrelated rap lyric to your photo? So, um, but that's crazy. So now, are you still teaching now? No. So I have been full-time Terra Firma Tackle now for two years. I finished my master's in science ed, and I finished up a couple of research obligations I had at the university. I was offered a position, and I turned it down simply because we were too far apart on numbers to make too much money doing this to do that. And so, and that was kind of a big, great awakening for me. It was like, shit, I've been training for 15 years to do this thing, and that's not... <laughs> Now this is the thing, you know, like the side gig became the real gig. And that was kind of like a great wake up call. And I also feel like I got distant from that academic world during the COVID pandemic because it really freed me up. Right. I could fulfill mm. all of my from wherever I needed to be. And that allowed me to do 
2020 and 2021, we were on the road all but five days a month. So we literally were never home. I fulfilled my obligations just like this, phone mount in the truck, talking to who I needed to talk to. I did my office hours, did my research obligations, and uh, wrote when I could to fulfill literature. And it, it, it kind of like, I was like, wait a second, I can actually do this. Like I can live like this. And then I kind of had hoped that that would be the way it would continue, that post-COVID world would look more like during pandemic land, where we'd all be on the the, the remote work from wherever right. model. And it wound up not being like that. Suddenly people wanted me to come back into the office and sit at a table with them and run numbers instead of running numbers from the backseat of the van while Matthew drove, you know, and that <laughs> hard for me to do that. And it made it more difficult to live in both. And if I had to choose, I'd choose this. End of story. Now, was that like a, I mean, was that like a, a scary decision? I always am curious about people who leave behind, I don't know, what's maybe a more secure job to venture into the unknown, or was it pretty seamless for you? Like, I mean, you made it sound like you'd already kind of were having financial success in the business before you made the jump, but is that something you struggled with or feared? During COVID is when it became apparent that we could make real money doing this. And that was like my first taste of it. And at the time I was only getting research grant money for my side liter or side research with partners. I wasn't on faculty. And so the academic aspect of it was mostly to finish a degree. So there wasn't any monetary subsidy there so much as, I mean, there was a little bit of grant money here and there for research, but it wasn't like enough to fund a, a life. And so when I, it was, the option was kind of continue to do this and make the money I'm making and more or go back to the, I get however much a year to do the thing. I teach nine units, you know, and that's a life and you can build a life like that. And it's, 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 there's something to be said for that. And I love teaching. I love it with, that's why I did it for 15 years, mm-hmm. but it, it, it was an easier decision when I saw the numbers for Terra when I started looking at these astronomical values that have since kind of kept me going that was when it became easy. It was just that we were just too far apart. What they could offer me and what I can make in the business were too far apart. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it sounds like you're, I don't know, you got the double whammy going because now you're like in something that you're absolutely passionate about. You're juggling the fishing. And then I imagine there's a lot of the education elements going along with it because what I know of you is there's, there's definitely some mentorship going on. And I know I, a lot of the guys that are going to be listening to this program probably internally struggle with that where, you know, it's real easy in this life to kind of navigate through life and, and, and sort of just get funneled into those mundane nine to five jobs. And a lot of people, you know, kind of like are those windows of opportunity are passing them by and maybe they're too scared to step out there and risk losing the comfortable lifestyle to try something uh, that might be more fulfilling. But I know, you know, I recently just spoke with your buddy, Jacob Wilkins, and he was showering you with praise because this is a guy who sounds like he's just kind of starting that journey for himself. Um, just picked up, left everything he knew, uh, is, is living a very risky but fulfilling lifestyle from what I can gather to move. Do what? Against my advice. And I think if you is that right? Him, <laughs> I told him several times not to do that because there are, mo- there is, there's definitely like a dark side to doing it on your own, right? There's nobody to fall back on. I don't have, there's no, there's no retirement plan. There's no, oh crap, my sales are down this month. I still right. have to pay, have to pay. You know, there's, 
there's definitely a lot of that. And your happiness, at least for me, my happiness is very much determined by how well I'm doing that month yeah. and how what my what it looks like. And so I, I, I did caution him against it, but the guy's passionate about what he wants and I wish him all the best and I will help him in any way I can. And I think he's got the stuff. But I always on the same the opposite side of that same coin, I see people that say stuff like must be nice or I wish I yeah. could do that. Well, you can. I, I'm literally, I'm nothing special. The angling part of it, I often joke that imagine what I could achieve if I was actually good at fishing. You know, I just, <laughs> I just have more time to do it because I decided that was how I was going to live my life, you know, and, and it's not been easy. I drove a $1,500 car for the last seven years. This is the first time I've been able to like buy a truck, you know, like it, it's, it's, it's a process and it's definitely more work than doing the other thing but i feel like at the end of the at the end of it all i'll be happier with what i've been able to do and that's what matters yeah well if there's ever a good time i guess uh, to take those kind of risks i mean he's not married he's got no kids you know if he fails he's still you know he just kind of got off that education exit he's got the room to turn back or things like that but you know it looks like he's surrounding himself at least with good guys but um so maybe it's the best time for him to, to, to take those kinds of risks. And he won't fail. Nope. The guys around him won't let him. And he's got, he's got too much, but there's not a fail. There's not a failing bone in his body. He's got this. It just, what route it winds up taking. That's what's up in the air. You know, there's so many ways to monetize this, that it's ridiculous, especially in this day and age. It's ridiculous. He's got it. He's going to make it. It's just how many bumps and bruises is he going to pick up along the way? <laughs> Well, yours is interesting because, you know, I, I went through your website and I looked at like what you're selling and, you know, I've only dabbled in like the land-based shark side of things. I've always kind of been on the outside looking in, admiring the guys that really do it. But I know it's sort of like, a, I know it's like this dark shadowy culture of, of people that I dare not really tread into, but apparently it's good enough that, you know, you've put out a product that, that people are consuming at a, at a good rate. So that's interesting to me because you know, I didn't know how much... Well, I, I have noticed that I don't know where else to buy that kind of gear. So it's sort of like one of those things that if you want to get proficient at doing, you, you have to learn how to make your own gear. You have to know how to build your own tackle. But I guess uh, your best marketing tool from what I can gather is like, well, you know, what the hell does this guy know? Okay, well, when you keep dropping these photos of these different fish you're catching on these different expeditions, it's like, okay, now that is some gear that I imagine I can trust assuming you're running your own gear, which surely you are. Uh, yeah. So that was something that was told to me over and over and over again, as we started. So initially we started with like the British style, like sea fishing kit, the suspended rigs, the pulleys, the loops and stuff like that. And it wasn't until right around uh, two or three months before all the pandemic shutdowns that we really started to push into that LBSF specific market and the, the big game tackle and bringing the float rigs out. And for a long time, I didn't, even push the technical stuff because I knew that that market was mostly consisted of people that had never thought that way and maybe would be resistant to it. And so I just stuck with like basic generic, here's some sinkers with legs in them. Here's some rigs that you put on the bottom and the fish eat it and it's cool and it works. And when that started to catch on and people started to, I think the biggest thing that sets our product apart from other people is, Hey, I'm making it all myself. It's my full-time gig. I, I touch every crimp. I'd look at everything. I've had people work for me here and there, and I'm always displeased with it. And so I'm such a control freak. I have to touch it. And so it's, it's 
there's never going to be a mistake because I stare at it all day, every day. I do it a thousand, thousand times. And so there's that. And then the other thing that I think sets it apart is that we use quality components and we charge a premium, but I think that gets appreciated. You get a lot more out of what if you look at the competition, you'll see varying rig lengths, but for the most part, you see people cutting corners on like six feet of cable instead of 12 feet mm-hmm. of cable. A rig with six feet of cable on it, you can fish it twice, change the hook twice, and you're out of cable. You don't have any more bite leaders. We start, our leaders come with 12 feet on them, every single one of them. And you can rebuild that rig 17 times, and you get a lot more bang out of your buck for it. And the swivels we use, we use ball bearing swivels. It's just a different approach to it. I brought that big game offshore quality tackle approach to something that was historically some crimps and some mono and you beat it to shit and you caught some fish with it. Right. And, and it's not like that, you know, and, and that was the other, I think that premium aspect to it really caught on. And then of course we, I'm, I'm very, everything's blacked out in my personal life. And so I blacked everything out and it yeah. looks like a, it's coherent. The site's coherent, everything. It, I just brought some flash <laughs> to an otherwise flashless industry. <laughs> Well, I noticed that you definitely have like a characteristic look. I think people would be able to pick out your product if it was mixed in with a lot of others. So that's, I mean, I think that's key to having your own identity just in the business space and whatnot. But, um, but I, it's, I, it always looks like you're either coming from a trip or planning a new trip. So I'm curious, like, where do you find time to manufacture this stuff? Or are you sitting in your manufacturing facility right now like are, are are you working out of an office are you building this stuff on the go how are you fulfilling all these orders so i have turned my entire home into tft head <laughs> started with one little office and now it's my office large portion of the living room the entire garage there are cardboard boxes full of foam floats in the hallway <laughs> an entire thing uh and one of the best way, the easiest way to explain how I have the time is the Instagram algorithm appreciates posts every other day. So I can go on a trip that's five days long, catch 30 fish and get two months of content. So I can appear to be gone perpetually. <laughs> not that I'm not gone a lot, but it looks like I'm gone a lot more than I am. The other thing that I'm a workaholic, I get home. And literally, I'll get off the plane, I'll get back, and I'll have 30 orders, and I'll finish them that night. I just can't leave them to rot. And so I I work 18-hour days when I'm home, 20-hour days when I'm home, and then I get back on the road. The road is when I get to rest, honestly. The airplane ride, the car ride, somebody else drives. I'll get my eight hours here or there. It's not uncommon for me to do 40-hour shifts on the road without sleep, but those are my. that's like when my brain gets to recharge, when I'm not sitting at home making rigs. But any, any, every second of every day, and my uh, significant other would tell you the same thing. She gets pretty sick of it herself. <laughs> well, you, you have better discipline than me because, you know, when I do get to escape and, and if I catch 10 different fish, I'm just going to blast all 10 of them at once. So maybe I need to change my strategy. But, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, I look at some of the expeditions that you've launched and it's like, I don't know, maybe it's like it seems like you gamble on fortune a lot because I look at some of the things you've accomplished and I'm like, is the fear of failure, like not outweighing like the expense that, that surely it costs. Cause I'm like, you know, like, uh, I, I don't even know which one to use as an example. Maybe the sleeper shark one. Now that's a, one that's very fascinating to me. When I saw that, I mean, I took my phone, I was showing it to my wife and all kinds of other people that don't give a damn about it. I'm like, look, look, 
Look what this guy did. I mean, where did the bait come from? How'd you get a kayak out there? How'd you ship all the gear there? I, I mean, the odds of pulling it off were probably so slim. I would have never even thought to roll the dice on such a thing. I mean, that is one. If you have time to tell a fish story, I've got to know about. Oh, so that will probably remain the loftiest thing we've ever tried to do. Uh, so the it started, the abyssal shark thing has been something I've been interested in since Six Skills first appeared in Puget Sound in like 2010. I happened to be there for a different research event, an aquaculture event, and I was I overheard somebody talking about how there were some six gills under the dock at the Seattle Aquarium. And that like kind of was like, hmm, maybe these fish are within reach. And my mission for land-based shark fishing is always, I mean, everybody can catch a hammerhead. You just put yourself in the right position, there's a hammerhead. My thing's been to catch as many different land-based shark and ray species as possible. That's like my mission statement, my personal angling goal. I took a break this year to do the sturgeon because it's getting harder and harder to find new sharks to go look for. But, and I kind of got a fire lit under my butt by you catching a gulf sturgeon. So I, <laughs> I, uh, the, so the six gills, we found those first, we were going to go do it in Vancouver and then the COVID hit and we couldn't get into Canada. And so we kind of scratched that. I looked for like somewhere else, I spent a ton of time looking at charts and maps and things. And I noticed patterns about the six gills and I went, I found a spot here. We went and fished and we caught one. And I was like, oh, wow. So this might actually be like a thing. And then we went and we caught 13. And I was like, okay. So when you find one, you find every single one of them. <laughs> and then I applied that to prickly sharks. And that by that point, I had a pattern down. I had something to look for for those kinds of fish, right? I had, I had a blueprint for when those deep water fish will be accessible from land. And it turns out, if you look hard enough, most known abyssal quote-unquote species in the Lesmobronk world have a aggregate site or a like migration to shallower water for some period of the year. Okay. And so I bumped into another researcher friend of mine that I would rather not bring up because he's caught some flack for working with me for obvious reasons, but he... <laughs> friend who knew something about some sleeper sharks and i talked to this person and this person said yeah we went up there to do research with the sablefish guys because they were saying they're catching a lot of nine foot six uh, sleeper sharks so we set gear and we didn't catch a single sleeper shark small enough to do work on for the size craft they had taken oh my gosh that lit a fire under me right then and there and that's when i realized that it would be possible not only possible but probably feasible and so I started looking at charts and looking at maps, and I found a, a a lodge up there in the middle of Podunk Nowhere that you can't get to. That's a uh, like a dive lodge, and they won't help you do fishing. I tried a hundred times. I tried to be like, "Hey, can we come and just pay the dive rate, and you just drop us off?" And they yeah. and so we made other arrangements, and so we had to fly up. This was during peak COVID, mind you. So we had to fly up. The airlines were running like reduced schedule. It took me thirty six hours to get to. Valdez, Alaska from California, like four plane rides because you couldn't stop in Canada to refuel because of COVID. So we had to like do this terrible like game to get up there. And then that was only half of it. Then we had to drive 110 miles one way in an aluminum skiff to get to the place that I had picked out that there might wow. be. Wow. <laughs> and so bait sourcing was fine. Like the guy we got, I, I've been a commercial fisherman my whole life with contacts up there. The guy we borrowed the boat from was a commercial shrimper. So he gave us like 
330 pounds of of bait, quote unquote. It was all kinds of stuff: salmon heads, octopus, shrimp carcasses, all sorts of stuff. And uh, so we just sent it, and it was a really difficult time for me on a personal note. My uh, engagement had fallen through; things were tricky. The business was doing well, but it was like overwhelmingly well. Like I couldn't keep up. And so I, it, I was not a hundred percent, but thankfully Matthew was a hundred percent, my little partner. And he got me through a lot of that. We got up there. One thing I didn't anticipate was the bear situation. I mean, I knew there were going to be bears, but I didn't realize that we'd get off the boat and immediately be bears. So I got in a little altercation with a fairly large coastal grizzly bear within the first five minutes of being there. So that was exciting. And then we got baits out and put- <laughs> day we were pretty sure it wasn't going to happen and then right around it's interesting because it's 24 hours of daylight but the fish still seem to know it's supposed to be night and so those abyssal fish tend to bite in the dark nothing happened all day i looked at my clock and was, I was like why is it it's 11 30 it's full sun outside 11 30 at night and then both rods go off and we had two fish on simultaneously we got my fish in at 15 4 and matthew landed get a tape on his his was way squirrelier didn't take as long to land so we didn't get a tape on his fish but it was a decent 12 plus fish and that was and we just kind of with our previous experience with the abyssal sharks we learned they were kind of fragile and so we just decided cool we have this we know where they are we're gonna leave them alone kind of packed the gear up headed back to valdez a day early and just kind of kicked around town the rest of the trip and just considered it a success and now now that 15 foot four which is mind-blowing is that the one that's in your profile picture yeah yeah yeah. that's wild so like people who might be listening to this i mean some folks don't know one shark from the next other than if it has a hammer shaped head but i'm <laughs> i'm i and and maybe i fall into that category so i'm still but i know enough like the, the sleeper shark i'm interested in just some of the biological facts about the fish but just run me through some things with them i and i might be wrong aren't they like uh the longest lived yeah. animal on earth other than yeah. i don't know I mean, how yeah. old is a 15 foot four fish? Like, how old is a fish like that? So, all of the research is predominantly there's five, and I, there's five, six, the people bend the rules with what counts as a sleeper shark because there's frog sharks and some other stuff that might count as sleeper sharks, but there's five or six species of sleeper sharks worldwide. And interestingly enough, there's one for about every major ocean or sea. And they kind of tend to stay in those imaginary lines, which is really interesting. But so the Atlantic version of the Pacific sleeper shark is the Greenland shark. That's what we call it. We probably should call it the Atlantic sleeper shark, but we call it the Greenland shark because pop culture. Common names are messy. It's a Greenland shark. The Pacific sleeper shark is that fish in the Pacific. Very recently speciated. There's even some evidence for hybridization. But what sleeper sharks essentially are is giant dogfish, giant spiny dogfish that are just they just get to enormous proportions because in these cold water environments you have less biodiversity but you have more primary productivity you have so much more food available when whales die when these large schools of bait fish die all of this winds up on the bottom and that's what these dudes do they make a living the greenland sharks 40 percent of their diet is terrestrial they eat stuff that washes in to the fjords in the atlantic and they moose polar bear seals sea lions whatever it's food and they seem to use the entire water column, but they spend most of their time at depth. For the Atlantic, for the Greenland sharks, that's 2,700 feet or more. Oh, my gosh. 
Antarctic, it's potentially more. The Pacific is a deeper ocean. They have access to 7,000 feet. And so that's probably where they spend most of their time. We caught our fish in 660 feet. And that's at about 800 yards from shore. We got to 660 feet. And that was not... the. In land-based shark fishing, we talk about like those. You'll hear people talk about thousand-yard drops. Really, your effective range is about three hundred. Yeah, you have free and stuff, and so six, eight hundred yards or six hundred yards is forever. That's that's too far. So you're fishing at the very limit of what your gear can do, and then to catch fish that big is incredible. But also, that fish to come up to six hundred and sixty feet is pretty much undocumented. You think of these fish as big deep-water abyssal fish. The ones that get caught in commercial fishing are in thousands of feet, and mm-hmm. uh, that in and of itself is unique. The Greenland sharks live to 600-something years. I think the oldest dated is like 427, and it wasn't even a very big fish. It was like an 18-foot fish. They get to 20-something feet long. But they do radioactive carbon dating on the irises, or on the, on the lenses of the eye, and it gives them like a ballpark date. I think the oldest is recorded is like 427 years. And that's only like an 18-foot fish. And so our fish at 15-4, there's not as many large documented Pacific sleepers. So 15-4 is pretty close to the end of life for that animal, like end of potential for that animal. The largest prior to our fish was in the 14 range, like 14-2 or something. I don't remember off the top of my head. Ours is the current largest measured. Obviously, we didn't do it scientifically. There's not like a picture of a tape. And there's not, we have two guys who are in the middle of Alaska. One's got to look for bears. It was impossible to do, yeah. but in theory, ours like I trust our measurements. I was there. The world well, you won't. can you can tell it's big. I mean, it's it. There's no faking it. The I mean, its tails tails is big bigger than your torso. <laughs> um, so that's but that's wild to think that that fish could have been swimming since before the United States was even yep. that's colonized. What we said when we posted it's, the fish. it's it's my I'm always deeply fascinated by just prehistoric creatures in general, but the, the idea that something like that has been swimming for that long, I don't know. I geek out over those things, but uh, I should have looked this up before I got on this call. Is it, what kind of shark was it that they just recently found like in the Gulf? It was one of those types of fish it's in the Gulf. Like- yeah. And it was, is that like an uncharacteristic find or wasn't it in like some sh- shallower type of water or what was the story there? There's an interesting thing with the Greenland sharks, and that is that we think of them as these like polar fish that spend all their time under the ice and they live down to 2,700 feet or whatever they're living in and, and they're cold water. But in actuality, every other member of that family uses way more water than that. The Pacific sleepers go all the way to Hawaii. The Southern sleepers come all the way up to Peru. Uh, the Mediterranean sleepers in Italy all the way into the Mediterranean Sea. The frog sharks in Japan are up into zero feet. Uh, I think what's happened is we didn't think about it. <laughs> and so there's an opportunity to that science is growing and we're finally paying attention to these megafauna after years and years and years of not really. It gets thrown in a pile of wasted fish. It gets called bycatch. It gets thrown away. Now there's this interest in this kind of conservation driven thing. There's also a phenomenon I've noticed about every 10 years, the Greenland sharks started to start to get seen in parts of their range that they weren't previously in. Now, we can blame this on sorts of things. We can blame it on climate change. We can blame it on food scarcity and them having to move into shallower water to find things they need because we have significantly overfished not only their population. We've seen a population decline in Greenland sharks 
there's almost none in Greenland. Let's put it that way. Like when I was looking at destinations, because they're on the list, they'll get done this year. Uh, Greenland is not an option. There's so few fish that you're not expected to catch one. There was a time when there were, they were infinite. They were dog food. Catch as many as you want. In our lifetimes, there were that many. And now there's not. It's a fish that lives probably in excess of 500 years. And they used to kill them for dog food. It's very, you very quickly deplete that sort of resource. And so I think part of it is that there might be a range, a natural sort of range extension as a result of climate change, or we're paying more attention. And I think it's probably a combination of the two. Well, that's wild. Just, I mean, I'm sitting here just adding up the things that, you know, a near 16 foot fish that could be over 500 years old and eats whale carcasses in a thousand feet of water. So, and the idea that that was captured from land just blows my mind, but you know, and I could get caught, caught up on that for the rest of the time we're talking, but I just think the nature of land-based shark fishing is so interesting. And like I said, I've only just a little bit dabbled in it, but I think it's, it's one of those types where things go from zero to a hundred so quickly. And I don't know, it like makes the hair on my, I'm still such a novice in that world, but you know, I've experienced enough that, that paddle out. I mean, the stuff that goes through the back of your mind in the middle of the night, being solo hundreds of yards offshore, towing a bloody chunk of meat out into the sea and dropping it. There's a lot that kind of goes through the mind psychologically. And I do it solo. I always get scared. I'm going to paddle back and see the line already peeling off and there'd be a problem. But, uh, but just, uh, I don't know the, the potential for what could be is, is, is so broad too, but I know you have come across great white sharks, not intentionally, I'm sure, but that being, I mean, that's like the pinnacle of oceanic predators by most people's measure, you know, unless you start talking about killer whales, but when we're talking about fish, that's, that's outrageous. So, uh, I, I don't even know how to begin conversation about, I mean, when did you first encounter one of those? I mean, what, what is the experience of seeing a great white shark come to the sand? Like the first one I ever met was in 2015 in California and I was thresher fishing and I was using some ridiculous, like 200 pound mono leader for threshers. I was experimenting with whether or not they were actually line shy. Spoiler, they're not. Um, and uh, so we hooked this little baby fish, this little five foot fish on a, not even a real good bait. It was, it's something we call a, a, a herring, but it's really a queen fish. It's like a croaker. It's kind of like a little cob, like a South African cob. And uh, they're really prevalent certain times of year when there's not any other bait. So we find ourselves using them sometimes. And that's what it ate. And I was shocked. Just caught it on 20 pound mono. And it never really, I mean, caught is the wrong word. We got it next to the pier and it like buzzed off and bit me off. And that was the end. And I was like, holy, what? Those exist? And so, and then that was 2015. Little did I know that was the beginning of what wound up being like unprecedented numbers of white sharks in California from then on. Like literally from then to today, there are more white sharks than any other macrofauna off the coast, like hands down. Like we've seen declines and seal populations, declines and ray populations. Like there's a, I, I hesitate to say plague proportions, but that's basically what's going on here is there are more, and it's probably a whole bunch of things. One of those things being that we treated that when we, we protected them in 1994. And at the time we thought they were like every other lambda shark, that's Mako's, white salmon sharks. And they had like one or two pups at a time. And we thought that 
that meant that it would take like 30 something years, 40 years for them to like have some kind of rebound and we'd see an increase. Turns out that they have a hell of a lot more babies than that. And I think the large, the, the largest number that's been found in a pregnant fish is like 36 juvenile mm. white sharks for one prenatal white sharks for one female. And that's, there is some in utero cannibalism and stuff like that, but that's still a hell of a lot more than two. And I think what happened is they just kind of, we gave them perfect scenario where they could just kind of puff up and rebound faster than we anticipated. And so there's a lot, there's a, there's a lot of white sharks. And so from 2015 to 2017, it was kind of when we started to grapple with the accessibility of that fishery and how to deal with the fact that there were going to be that many fish and how are we going to, yeah, going to hook these fish. And we went back and forth, even with fish and game over it. It's like, if we're going to hook these fish, what do we do? Do we take them to the beach and take the gear out? Do we leave them with gear? Uh, there was some box release stuff that went around that I unfortunately was like in the video for. And so like that gave me a little bit of a headache. And so like they're a big fish and everybody's sensitive about it. But really with here in California, if you put a bait in the Pacific ocean, that, that's what you're going to catch. Like that's like what 90% of the fishery here is. And it's not, there's nothing to do with intent. I mean, there obviously are people that are out there running 28 on hooks and 9,000 pound cable and, playing games and catching a lot of those fish but realistically in most of the places you're going to fish you might encounter we found ways to avoid and we haven't caught one since april of last year and mm -hmm. some of that is that we're not fishing as much but some of that is like literally just avoiding places where there are a lot of them right and that's there's some new laws that came into effect on the first of the year and it should cut down on some of the targeting that's going on like there's a lot of people that are fishing in hot spots and going out there and beating up on them and i get the appeal like it's a big strong fish it's fun to catch it's no different than the hammerhead thing back east mm -hmm. and for the most part it's relatively harmless other than that it's immoral <laughs> but yeah. i mean fish mostly live nothing can really go wrong and so when you start bringing them they're talking about drone fishing and not like being able to see where you're putting the baits and leaving gear in the fish and not having a drone to go like correct it. one of the fish that died recently got tangled on a buoy and that could have been mm. so avoidable hadn't been drone fishing if he'd been in the kayak could have paddled out and untangled the fish fish would be alive everybody's happy nobody needs to know that it happened yeah. but because of this advent of drone fishing enabling people to have access to this fishery that otherwise wouldn't have the physicality to do so we have more problems you know it's just the fact that the more you have people all segments of society are pretty much a bell curve and you have the sportsmen and non-sportsmen in every group and when you increase that sample size you get more bad eggs than you would if you had a smaller sample size and that's all that's happened but the white shark thing is it's sensitive but there's a there's a lot of them. <laughs> is there a best practice for i mean because i know you got to preserve your own safety and the safety of the fish i mean how do you handle something like i don't know i mean what's the biggest one you've even encountered 16 flat 16 feet good god now i mean how do you i don't i mean how do you approach something like that in a safe manner while while obviously trying to move quickly so lamnids are unique in that once they've hit the beach the lamnid sharks make those salmon sharks portugals white sharks they're completely docile on the sand as soon as they're out of the not out of the water but as soon as they're not fully wet they're they just they stiffen up like i've seen them react badly like twice but most of the time it's they just, they're a ragdoll. You, you have time to work around the fish. They, they release incredibly well. We've had some fish that we've caught that have had 
incredible scars from previous encounters with commercial gear or other sharks. We've had what we caught one back in like 2016 that had a gill net scar wrapped all the way around its peck fins and had cinched oh. its decapitated it and it ate our bait. Like they're, they seem to be incredibly resilient. So there's that, that's a good thing. Uh, our best practices for how we handle it here, we have a, and we set a set of rules for ourselves probably in 2019 where after we encountered one, we went home. That was rule one. That was, if mm. you found a white shark there, that's all you're going to catch, pack up, go home. The other fish don't want to be there when they're there. Catch a white, end of the story, go home. And that was a, at the time we ran charters and stuff. And so that was like a, t- a sensitive subject. Like you booked for a full day of fishing, we caught one fish and now it's time to go home. But that was just our like moral code, right? So that was, we'd explain that like, hey, if we catch a white shark, that's the end of the day. Like you can't be here anymore. Mm-hmm. Done is we've, we've moved to barbless hooks since right around 2019. And that helps with the release a lot. And if something does go wrong and you do break off, you're more likely for the hook to come out of the fish, right? And le- there's less risk of gear entanglement because once the pressure comes off the line, that hook can fall back out. Mm-hmm. And they're less likely to encounter buoys and things of that nature after after release or after gear failure. And then the other thing was just to never, ever, ever, ever take pictures, right? So we catch yeah. the fish. We're, we're usually a two-man team. It's usually me and Matthew or me and somebody else. And somebody's on a camera, but they're not they're taking they're not taking stills, they're taking video. And you pull stills from the video and then what wound up happening was when the Florida regulations came out, it was like, don't take the fish out of the water. Don't do this and that. I started to encourage people to behave that way here. And then when our new laws came out, they literally mimicked almost word for word our like little secret code of ethics about handling the fish. Right. So the new right. rules, if you encounter one, go home, you can't fish for 36 hours in that location because they're known to be present. It was very much like how we just decided to operate. And I, I can't help but think that somebody was listening. <laughs> Well, I'm sure it attracted a lot of attention. I, I would I would look at some of the things you've caught and assume that interested science groups have probably reached out, you know, in the wake of some of the things you've managed to pull. But, um, you know, the other thing that it kind of just, you know, the imagination races when you see those things. And, you know, I, I don't know, I'm just some guy that that dreams. But I'm always curious, like I know when I paddle my own baits out. You know, there's always that thought in your mind, like, oh, shit, like something better not come up and bump this kayak. Like, I'm a scaredy cat. You know what I mean? Have you had any kind of encounters while paddling out with a fish that, you know, there's blood trailing out the back of the kayak? I mean, have you had any have you had any sketchy follows or encounters while out on the water in the kayak? No. So other people I fish with have. Matthew has. Mm. uh, Matthew's been in the kayak while we were hooked up to another fish. And had that fish come past him in the kayak. And so, I mean, it's not quite the same thing, but he has been close to the fish. We, I've never had like an unprovoked, I'm just paddling a bait, here's a fish. I've definitely had like, I'm paddling the bait, I drop the bait and look back and they're already hooked up, which means there was one following the boat, but I didn't, I wasn't aware of it. This last year, I ran some baits and paddled past some fish, but they didn't seem to care about me. I launched the bait in the surf and started going out and I paddled right over like four smallish fish and was like, Oh, interesting. And just kept going. And so there was that, but I have had to go out and get fish off of buoys. So I've had those encounters where I have the fish next to the kayak. 
And they're usually pretty calm, and I try and stay calm. And then, actually, a few years ago, we were mako fishing offshore, and we caught a little 400-pounder in the kayak and got it next to the boat and got it dehooked in the kayak. So I, I, I'm pretty tame with those fish. I worry more about, like, your little black tips and your spinner sharks and things like that that are a little squirrelier and a little more, like, inquisitive that scares me more <laughs> yeah did you just I, I don't know if i misheard did you say little 400 pounder yeah so like a little <laughs> <laughs> you know it's, i i like your pictures too of the threshers that you're catching i've seen the ones where you're catching them out of a kayak i remember it might have been a shark week years years ago where the guys were thresher fishing and they were they kept talking about the hazard of the tail whipping around and there was even one of the guys, I think he got smacked in the head or something like that. I mean, you had any kind of issues. With, I mean, I'm just thinking sitting low on the water and that tail flipping and flying around. I'd probably hurt. swipe the skin right off your face. Yeah, it would hurt pretty bad. I got hit. We had one coming over the rail at the pier years and years ago when I was in high school. And I got hit and it hurt. But in the kayak, I don't know. I fish out of a... I'm pretty nautical and sporty. I fish out of an 18 foot long boat that's only 18 inches wide when I kayak fish. Oh, but I, I, my level of my threshold for squirrely is pretty high, and so I've never literally in a the only time I've ever been scared in the kayak was when we had a an approximately 800 pound mako show up to the chum, Oof. and the entire bucket while it was attached to my kayak. That was sketchy. That was the only time in my life I felt like a prey animal. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, that, that, that I can see that being a problem there. And that changed the way we fish. We no longer do that. And we had jokingly talked like one day we're doing this Mako in the kayak thing, find one that we shouldn't mess with. And that's exactly what happened. And uh, I tried to hook it in self-defense so that it would swim away and it, it didn't want to play with me. It just wanted to chum. But it was the moment that was that moment that I was like, huh, this is a bad idea. And so we've since stopped doing that. And I've, I've given other people tips on how to do it. People have expressed interest in doing it. And I, I'm a fully supportive of that. It's just that was the moment where I was like, OK, we had our fun. We caught quite a few six and seven foot fish in the kayak. Let's let's hang that up and uh, count, count our losses and move on. <laughs> Mako in a kayak. That's I mean, that's got to be a hell of a sleigh ride. I mean, they yeah. top out at like 50 miles an hour, don't they? That, yeah, they spend most of the time not in the water. Has been my experience when you Jumping, hook them with yeah. a tight line in the kayak. It's mostly out of the water. I think our biggest is seven two in the yak, and uh, it's sporty. It's the hardest part. It's hard. Like if you if you are keeping them, which we did for the big one, uh, that's the tricky part. Getting the fish on board. But if you're just catching release, get them next to it, take a little picture, and send them on their way. You know. But you gotta be. You gotta have your wits about. You know. You gotta be. I wouldn't recommend your first kayak fishing experience being Mako's in a kayak. No. Once you're comfortable with the craft and you kind of know what you're doing, then there's that. But just being offshore in general is scary. So like, it's all relative. Right. <laughs> oh, trying to not, I've been battling this cold for like three weeks. No, that's crazy. Um, well, and I'm gonna, I guess I'll try to move away. The sharks always just bring me in. And that's probably what a lot of people want to listen to. But I know I see, I, I like what I'm seeing now is that you seem like you're, and you've probably always done this. I don't know if you're just circling back, but you know, you're doing a fair amount of freshwater fishing too. And we could probably talk all day about the sturgeon thing, but the Euro style carp angling, I seen you've gone for alligator gar. It wasn't too long ago. I saw you holding a bowfin, which is near and dear to my heart. Um, I sometimes wonder though, like when you've caught, 
all this diversity, especially big fish. You ever get worried you're like setting the bar? I mean, can you be happy going out and staying small? Absolutely. Or do you get worried like, oh, this is underwhelming? No, sometimes it's actually more rewarding. So I'll let you, I'm going to let you in on a little secret about land-based shark fishing. And that is that when you have it right, you have it right. You can do it in five minutes and be done. Uh, the, the multi-day thing and the, and the, how long it takes to get bit, there's conditions. There's like a map. There's like a blueprint. It's really, really easy. It's one of the easiest fisheries I've ever experienced. Uh, it seems big, charismatic and interesting and hard, but really it's not very time consuming. It doesn't take very much effort. Once you have it down, like the, the learning it is hard, right? So like nobody wants to share with you. And so like you have to do it all. But once you figure that, like hammerheads, east wind, daytime, night, doesn't matter. East wind, as long as the east wind on the beach and it's fishable, you'll catch a hammerhead. Like it's really simple. <laughs> yeah. And initially when we started doing this stuff, we'd budget like 10 days. We'd go for 10 days. We'd catch all their fish in the first 15 minutes and then be like, oh, now we're here for 10 days. What do we do? Yeah. And, <laughs> we'd have 10 days and if we didn't catch them in the first two days and the conditions weren't going to change we never caught them you know like mm. it's driven where so like it's it, it's it's either on or off so what we do these days is we'll like i started doing i, I call them loops i'll like plot a course that takes us in like some route and there'll be something along that i try and put something about every 10 hours so like there's something to do every 10 hours and that helps break it up. And usually more time doesn't help. Like if they're not going to cooperate, they're not going to, it's something we've noticed. Like if you have four days to catch such and such trout and you don't catch it in the first hour, you're not going to catch him. He's not there. Yeah. Like long. when you hit it, you hit it, you know? And there's some exceptions to that. The land-based halibut last year, that, that took three days to get dialed. And that was one of the first times that having them more time helped me. But I had so much experience with not being able to, if you didn't do it, but the joke is if you didn't do it in 15 minutes, you can't be done. Yeah. And so like after the first day, I was like, shoot, we might not be able to do this. And like my heart sunk and like it wasn't possible, but I, I, we thought about it hard and we went back. A lot of it is sticking to your guns and knowing what you know and, and trusting in the fact that you picked those places for a reason. Once you get there, it can psych you out. And all, the other thing that happens is you pick four or five places on a satellite map and you get in and only two of them are official. And then you wonder uh, yeah. if those other two were the one, you know, and you're in the B spots now and you don't know. And, and so it, there's a lot of that, but the small stuff in some ways to me is more memorable. Some of mm -hmm. like my top 10 every year. And most of the time it's not all sharp. Most of the time, half of it is something else like that. Other people don't care, but I care. So I do it for me. Like, and it really is more some of our favorite things we do over and over again. I don't even post all the muskies we catch. I just, I can't. Yeah. <laughs> People don't care. So I don't post them, but that's something we do every time we get a chance, you know, and I don't know. Redfin pickerel was something that stood out to me a few years ago. It was one of the most interesting things I did. And that's like a micro fishing thing. Yeah. Yeah. Those can be kind of hard to find too. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was, that was rewarding and remarkable. And I don't know, like I try and remember that, I do have to do things that that you draw attention and do that other people want to see. That's that's part of my job. But then I also I'm doing it for me more than anything else, you know. And so I have to do the things that I find interesting. And sometimes, right. like or Paku from last year, I didn't think anybody would care about, but it it performed better than the Gulf sturgeon from the same trip. 
and I was like, oh, okay. So then you kind of get like a little confidence boost, like, okay, maybe I can do some weird stuff, you know? And so that, that was, that was neat, you know, but I definitely find as much reward in the small things that are tricky as then I do, as I do in the big things. Yeah. That was kind of the Gulf Sturgeon one's kind of funny. I, I was riding on a high after, after that happened for me, I'm like, Oh my God, no one's ever going to do this again. I'm, I'm the only one. And then uh, I hear from Jacob that you're in town. I'm like, well, might as well go ahead and pack my bags on that one. But, uh, but that's cool. I really liked it too, that you're also catering a lot of like the gear that you're selling towards. Like you got the sturgeon rig, you're venturing outside just the shark fishing with oh, yeah. the sturgeon you're getting into what I, what's really interesting to me is is like the euro style carp fishing and i see that you're really kind of diving into that so i would think i mean are you getting client base like overseas or is it mostly here in the u.s but tell me about that yeah. a little bit i i sent a bunch of gear over to denmark and i just sent a bunch of gear over to the uk and uh yeah the, the issue so i the sturgeon market surprised me right? Like I started to do that for myself and I was like, well, I need to monetize this and I'm going to spend a year doing, I basically spent a year doing that pretty much exclusively. And so I needed a way to monetize that or to make, give me some reason why I was doing it other than because I wanted to. Right. And so, because it did pull me away from a lot of stuff to do that. I mean, I basically spent 11 months last year sturgeon fishing. And so, and enormous amounts of financial investment to do that. Lots of misses and trips and redos. And there's a lot of stuff you don't see. Like if I don't go catch them, there's no posts. So it doesn't look like I did anything, but I went to Montana five times last year for a shovel nose and didn't catch one. So, <laughs> <laughs> which is extra dumb because it's the most common sturgeon on the planet. But anyway, so yeah. <laughs> did the sturgeon rigs and I was surprised by them. It's now about the freshwater tackle is about 10% of gross now. And that's not a whole hell of a lot, but 10% is 10% that I didn't have before. So that's nice. And it's a diversification thing. The carp rigs is tricky because there's, they're little, they're fiddly and hard to tie. Mm-hmm. And they, I can't sell them for $10 because they're not worth $10, but that's how much the labor is. So I do the carp thing kind of just out of like the, just wanting to say I sell carp tackle basically. But and also giving somebody an, an outlet for that. I mean, there's big carp tackle and there's a couple of other brands that do the Euro stuff in the US. Right. But it's overwhelming. If you're just getting into it, you go to those sites, it's like, oh whatever. So I offered like a pack that's like this will get you started. There's three rigs, a couple of feeders, get out there, go see if you like it. And there's that. And then a lot of it is like for our fishery in America, you don't really need to get terribly technical. They're mostly wild mm-hmm. fish, but they are big. So you got to, everything's got to be down right. Hook sharpness is key. Hook shape is a big thing. People carp fish in the U.S. with regular hooks. I don't know how they hook anything. Like, it's hard enough with proper Euro-style turning hooks. Like, I can't imagine trying to do it with an octopus hook. Like, I just, how many fish you must miss and not even know you've been done. Yeah mind-numbing <laughs> have you have you taken any time to like to mess with the buffalo now like that's a weird one like i felt like there's such a stark difference in the way that the they, they look similar but there seems like there's such a massive difference in the way that they approach a bait from a carp yeah so we've caught all the buffalo except for big mouse and the reason we haven't caught big mouse is they're filter feeders uh we'll get a shot at that we'll have to sight snag them you know i, I have no i have no qualms about force feeding fish that don't eat i paddle fish i do other things yeah so if one presents itself i'll catch it uh but 
they just they won't eat a bait. There's no way. Maybe you could get a zig in front of enough of them that one's mouth is open when he passes it, but it's technicalities. Uh, so we've caught every buffalo except for big mouths. Black buffalo are the most like a carp in my experience, mm -hmm. and a lot of people overlook black. They they call them big mouth buffalo, but they're not. They're just different fish altogether, and they have a pretty wide range. And there's a lot of overlap with smallmouths, and there's even some hybridization. But the blacks tend to eat the baits. Like I, I can get if I can find black buffalo and I can get baits in the front of them, I can get them to eat. The smallmouth buffs are so much trickier, riggier, warier. Put wrong, they they're gone for the day. Like it's very you can't stalk a smallmouth buffalo. You just can't do it. Like it has to be weight and bait. If you try and stalk them, you'll spook them, which changes a lot of American carping is stalking because we're dealing with such large bodies of water. They're not fishery lakes, they're huge bodies of water, there's natural bodies of water. And if you're not in front of the fish, you can't catch them. So there's a lot of walking involved in most American carping and you just can't do that with the small miles, but it is something we have caught a few like Livingston in Texas on our guard trip. Mm -hmm. Nothing remarkable, like 15 pounders, but it was a bucket list thing. You know, I would love, I had this year, I had to do Sharkathon in Texas and I really didn't want to do Sharkathon. And I tried to link up with the smallmouth Buffalo guide there and do some of that. But I wound up having to shorten that trip. My workload was too big at home. I had a lot going on and I had to shorten that whole trip up and didn't get a chance to do that but it's on the list and the next time i'm going through there i'll definitely spend some time on that but yeah if you if you're referring to austin anderson he's he's i mean that kid's probably more dialed in on those than any especially the big ones but it's like what i saw with him is it's just a it's a, such a different style like the guy totes around like his own travel trailer like this mobile site filled to the top with gear He's out there for days. He is dumping hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds of bait like per year, per session, per whatever, just to get them to get those fish dot, you know, zoned in on those areas. But uh, yeah, when, when we were out there, we actually dropped some underwater cameras down just to look at the fish because like, we, we, I think, spent the first two days without a single bite. I'm like, oh my God, I came out here. I'm going to not catch Jack Diddley crap. And then we looked at some of the footage and you got all these giant fish down there. Like they're, they are there. So it's, um, I don't know. That's an, it. That, that is a scene that I'd love to see blow up here. I just don't know if the culture of fishing in America's, I don't know. Most folks just don't want to sit around waiting for a bite like that. And they, that we have, it, I don't think it's possible to cure America of the trash fish problem. I, I, we have this whole thing where like, if it's not a bass, it doesn't count. Yeah. Even in offshore fishing, the ocean has so many cool alternate right. and everybody loses their crap over a Dorado. Like, what are you like? What? What? Huh? I would so not. If I never see another Dorado or Amberjack in my whole life, I'll, it'll be too soon. But yeah. people that I don't understand. Like, I get it. Whatever. If that's your thing. That's your thing. But I wish I think largemouth bass did a, a serious disservice to fishing in North America by becoming all there was, you know, and like we've seen a little bit of a there's some light at the end of the tunnel, like Gar getting some press, Longnose Gar starting to get down. Like there's always been alligator Gar, but Longnose Gar starting to get down by people. Yep. Game fish. It's, they're freaking freshwater sailfish. It's the coolest thing ever. They tail walk, they go ballistic. They're challenging to hook. It's a neat thing. And the buffalo will suck. Suckers have the same problem. We have so many large charismatic suckers. And it's something I'm working on right now is all the trying to figure out all the charismatic suckers. Don't tell mm -hmm. Noah. Um, but uh, yeah. they're. Uh, <laughs> 
that's something that I wish people would have spent time on, like, because they're so much cooler than, and in my experience, suckers are some of the hardest fighting animals on the planet. Pound for pound, they get after it. Just like a hammerhead shark. They just get after it. And there's trash fish or why? Yeah. I mean, I guess you could if you really wanted to. <laughs> That's a weird one. I, I have like run in the, like the rough fish circles for a long, long time since I was a little kid. I mean, since like, you know, I don't know, since internet fishing became a yeah. thing in the message board days. And I have never really known how to diagnose that problem. It's always been a great mystery. Um, but I, I don't know. That's it. That is one of those things now where I don't know. Social media has got a lot of flaws, but at least I don't know if it's that more people are starting to be happy to go gar fishing or bowfin fishing or sucker fishing than ever before. Or if social media has just exposed the groups that were already there, but it seems like there's a slight shift kind of taking place. So, and in my, it's the audience thing is strange because I've tried to like figure out what my audience wants to see now for 10 years. Right. And some of the things they care about, I'm stunned by and other things that I think they should care about. They really, really don't. And Gar was one for me was we did, we got some really respectable guard. We got a six, two and like a five, eight and a lot of long noses on that. We did a 28 day, like every big game species in America thing, all the known ones. And, uh, the alligator guard performed like in the bottom third of the whole trip. And it really blew my mind. And I, I kind of thought maybe it was like saturation. Like there's a lot of people that are, that are doing that now. And so there might be like some saturation and it's not as interesting, but then also you've got guys like, Peyton down in Texas at Wildlife, who's built his whole brand around Alligator Gar and has had great, right. enormous, not saturation. It's something else. And I don't, maybe it's because I don't do the hyping thing. I'm not like, oh, this terrible creature with all these teeth. And uh, it's like, I don't, that's not how I operate. Like, I don't, I, I refuse to do that. I, I'll, t- I'll tell yeah. someone neat fact. That's it, you know? And maybe that's, I, I don't know. I just, I just, I can't get that cartoonish about an animal and not to say yeah. that those people are wrong they're doing what they need to do to make a living and it's great and i really appreciate peyton i really appreciate all those guys but it i think that's if more people did that for suckers or did that for buffs or did that for any of these other there's so many charismatic large game species on this continent that it's ridiculous we have yeah. most diverse big game fisheries on the planet in freshwater and it's just completely ignored I completely, yeah, I completely agree with that. I, I had written and put together like a list of like top 10 freshwater fish in the U.S. And and uh, it's one of my blog posts that perform better than any of the other ones. I get a lot, I pull a lot of like views from people from across the world for that one. But uh, yeah, I don't, I, you know, that's one that I'll never understand. I kind of, I share the sentiment too with the acting silly or acting crazy in a video. And it's, I think it's easy to hate on the people that do that only because I, I just, I couldn't do it. There's no way I could possibly act silly, but you know, I don't know. I try to make lemonade out of those things. When I look at it, it's easy to be like a hater and I don't want to ever fall into that category. So I, I sometimes look at some of the guys that are using pool noodles to catch fish and gummy worms and whatnot. And I'm like, well, that is stupid beyond belief. But then I think, well, how many kids watched Mm -hmm. that and it made them want to go fishing. And, And then, you know, from there they'll find their path. But it may be the way that we have to, I don't know, because children, make no mistake, are 
the main audience for people doing that. And maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, I agree. Uh, it's weird. Like the alligator guard too, it seems like the most like marketable fish we have on the continent. I mean, it's one of those things that just stops you in your tracks. And I've, I've had these conversations with people, especially when you t- talk about just on the topic of kids. Mm. I always kind of give this analogy when I have these conversations with people that like, you know, if you take a kid that doesn't know anything about fishing and you take them to the state aquarium and that aquarium has got largemouth bass, rainbow trout, not that all these things would live together in the same aquarium, striped bass. And then there's an eight foot long alligator gar hovering above them. All of the kids are going to be fixated on that fish. Like, like there's your opportunity to kind of, uh, I don't know, build the narrative, but unfortunately there's still that kind of grandfathered in ideology. And maybe the kid is there with his grandpa and says, Oh no, Billy, you know, those things are horrible. They're, they're trash. And it's like, you almost have to intercept that ear before the old guard can get to them. But, um, I don't know. It's such an easy sell. It's an interesting one to me too. I mean, I started doing the alligator gar thing in 2010 and, and, and even not, that's not that long ago, but even then you had one, maybe two guys sitting at the top of the heap that were, that basically cornered that fish. So weird. Like you had one guy, maybe two guys, a lot of weird infighting in that community of people too. And I'm just like, you know, it is just a matter of time before a normal person comes along and pulls the rug from under y'all's feet while you act dramatic and silly and stupid. If a normal or entertaining or authentic human being starts trying to be the gar guy, good luck. But well, I think um, that I think that's what Peyton pulled off down there in Texas. Honestly, like watching his content, he came at it from a conservation standpoint, mm-hmm. and he's done a really good job of consistently staying on really really big fish in relatively urban environments and. It paid off. I started watching him when he was just, I watched it for the goofy carp content yeah. because it was, here's a cage feeder and some six pound fluoro on a fly reel. I'm going to go catch carp. And that was entertaining to me. And so I, and then I watched him kind of like gradually become the gar guy and more power to him. Like he's done a really good job, but that's what he did. He's just a, he's a, a, a well-spoken clean angler and he cares about the fish and it got him content press and it got him where he is. And I think that that's the model that we should be promoting, especially like the shark fishing world. I'm sure you've seen it is such chaos and yeah. And a lot of it gets directed towards me for, I guess, because I'm the, the, the big target. Like that's gotta be what it is. I'm scared to even go on some of those pages and post. Yeah. So because I'm like, I'm sure I mishandled that. I'm sure my rig is a joke. My Bimini twist (laughs) probably looks like crap. I'm like, I ain't yeah. even going down that road, but, but I yeah, opened about one of them, so you can say whatever you want in there. It's probably fine, but uh, yeah. yeah, it's it, it's. But I think if we promoted more of the guys that do it clean and do it right and do it in a way, it, it'll never be clean, right? It can never shark fishing's messy. It'll never be perfect. Yeah, but the focus on the guys that are doing it as clean as they possibly can, that that'll get us where we need to be. Yeah. And I mean, no matter what, it's going to go extinct. We're not going to be able to do it forever. That's something that's going to go away. Like yep. it just amount of human beings that are participating in sport now, the amount of press it gets, the places it has to take place in, it can't go on. And so that's another major catalyst for me stepping a little bit, pulling away from that in the last year or so, 
I can't build my life and my business around solely that. I can't. It's going to go away. I can't. Yeah. I don't have. This is my plan. So if if that goes away, I need another market. And so that's kind of where I've gone with with the focusing on other things. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I mean, that's kind of where I was going to go from there. I was curious. I mean, I, I, I know, I don't know how many times you've done it, but I know very recently you went abroad, like out of the country and, and chased the sturgeon. So I was curious if like your future plans, maybe this year or the next, I mean, like, what is the future looking like? You got any uh, different type of like non-shark related expeditions coming up? Yeah. So I did my calendar about a week ago and it, it's moving, right? And it's always a moving target, but I'm doing hopefully with any luck. So we leave next week for a little like repeat thing, a place I always go. Uh, and that'll be interesting. Hopefully I can't, it's one of those things, but some of the largest fish I ever caught should be there again. And so we're going to play that game again. And, uh, then after that, I have a big ice tour in February, terra firma tackle on ice. We're going to go. Oh, cool like the entire midwest and i built some rods last year i sold a few and people gave me good feedback so i'm going to try and promote that a little bit there's some and not like i'm not doing rainbow trout through the ice or yellow perch i'm going to go do white sturgeon lake sturgeon lake trout muskie some other interesting maybe even some paddlefish through the ice i've got a bunch of stuff i'm working on that's kind of like out there kind of put a tft flare on some ice fishing and so that's that's in february and then after that, we're all the way abroad. Nothing really domestic after that. Uh, yeah. North African stuff, island stuff, some Caribbean stuff. A lot of it's, we're back on the sand a lot this year, but a lot of it's not with the big reels, you know, a lot of surf fishing type stuff. And then back to Europe for some charismatic wells, a couple mm. more stuff. And I think I've got beads on. That'll be trickier than the last one, but I think I've got it. And then, yeah, so mostly international this coming year, mostly because the continent is pretty, it's gotten pretty small for me lately, you know, like short of chasing some suckers around, which I probably will do this year when I get chance. A lot of it's, a lot of it's in the Midwest and close within 10 to 12 hours of me, like yeah. an experiment, but I can't do it too much because I'll get the wrong kind of attention because they're, unfortunately we really screwed those fish up. So, <laughs> but yeah, so you know and then a lot of it is balancing whether or not this will be an interesting experience with the ice fishing and stuff to see if the content plays and if the content doesn't play i have to go back to something that does you know and so the sturgeon did really well for me and i'm happy with that and that was a good year but i definitely feel like if i i get guilty like i did that because it was something i wanted to do what if i had put that time into some shark stuff you know what i've made mm -hmm. more money what interest but it's it's just it, there's no board of directors to talk to there's no metrics to you know i just got to do what i feel like is the move and i've got to do what the people that'll come with me to help me do it will do so there's that element of oh it yeah, too. yeah. Like, i didn't even think about that factor that's got to be interesting enough to the guy that's splitting the rental car with me or the guy holding the camera that he wants to come and take time out of his life and that's something i've watched happen to my little crew over the years is people grow up and get jobs and get married and yeah. change the their life becomes less flexible and mine doesn't. And so I wind up like mm -hmm. cycling two people and there's a learning curve and then things don't go as well. And so it, it's tricky. And the sturgeon thing really had a lot of that shine through because it was hard to get people to 
hey, I have an idea of where there might be some green sturgeon. Do you want to come? Yeah. Is a sell. <laughs> right. So we're probably going to skunk. Want to play is not really the opening line for a, a, a good sell. But well, you don't want to be the guy that could have been there either. So that's interesting. But yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to make my first international trip this year. I was one of the COVID holdouts. Not to get on that topic, but it's like, you know, now is the time. Like, I can finally do this. So, hoping to do that. But that, that's another one that, you know, kind of surprised me. You don't see more American anglers going abroad. It's like, it's like the European guys have overtaken that scene. So, that's another one of those great fishing mysteries for I think that's American a, angler. I think that's a, the class of people that fish abroad are in a different social class than the class of angler in the U.S. That's something I've noticed. Like you get a lot more angling isn't in America. Angling's a blue collar sport, like in general, mm-hmm. just generalize and overseas. It's not overseas. It's upper blue collar into white collar. It's something that people do for fun. It's something that has a, I feel like it's got a longer history. I mean, that's where it started. It's got a longer history there. That's where the word angling was developed. And that that's like, yeah, it's, it's got a more socially acceptable and Thankfully, with the YouTube and the Instagram and the Facebook, it's become super socially acceptable here. I've so many kids fishing now. When I was a kid, I talked about fishing. I was a nerd. Now all these yeah. kids, there's like and stuff, and so I, I think we're, we'll we'll see a change in that too. But I think for the most part, the reason you don't see American anglers traveling abroad, and the reason you don't see land based shark fishermen pushing the envelope, is because they don't have the opportunity to do so. It's not the, the it's not who typically fishes in this country, and that, it's a shame. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I, th- I don't know. There was like the little bit of a impression made by like, I don't know, the river monster influence that might've got more kids willing to do that. And sure. I know Jeremy Wade gets I, what I feel is like some undue flack from people that I don't really understand. Uh, but that's another one of those ones where like the entertainment value had to be in, installed into the, sh- into the program in order to get televised and run for so many seasons. But I also know that probably drew a lot of kids to the water. Oh, so absolutely. it's, it's interesting not, how that stuff works. I try not to give him any flag. I mean, he did a, he found a way to make a living doing what he loved to do. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, where I do wish we had spent more, spent more attention. There's guys like Larry Dahlberg who did that. Flat yeah. He was the first before. one I saw. Yep. And then there was a science guy. I want to say his name was Zeke or Zach. Zeb Hogan. Zeb Hogan. Yeah. 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 And that show was actually put together incredibly. That to me is one of the best modern fishing TV shows ever. They didn't have any, and the reason it failed is it didn't have any hype. It was right. just thing, but it was interesting if you kind of already knew. Yeah, it's it's a shame you have to. I don't know. You got to put a little bit of that poison in there to plant the seed or, or get the attention. It's, I try to tell people like, there's no way that that Jeremy Wade guy actually believes these things are eating cows and yeah, you have to say it. So it's just, I don't know. It's one of those interesting dynamics there, but, uh, you know, one thing that's kind of funny, I have it written down. I didn't know how to tie it in those photos that people are doing online of you where they like digitally impose you into pictures of like a dead Sasquatch, a dead woolly mammoth. And they got you there. That is hilarious. Where did that begin? Oh man. Oh, <laughs> and because la- oh man, two years ago we caught a couple of sawfish on the west coast of Florida mm. and we held onto the 
we were put it into the science and I did work with the, the science, the sawfish reporting center over there. Like they knew everything. And I held on to the fish for like two months. I didn't say anything about them. It's typical, typical of me. By the time you see something, it's been over a long time. Yeah. And so I for a really long time. And because I've been a bad person or something by accident, it got, I posted, I scheduled those posts for those fish on a day that two sawfish washed up dead in the Florida Keys. Oh, Com- no. <laughs> 360 miles away from where we caught our fish. <laughs> and two months later, and so some people that had it out for me at the time uh, blamed me on those fish and photoshopped my face into somebody next to those fish. And so that became a thing. And then like a couple of months later, when we went live with the sleeper sharks, those same guys that tried to blame the sawfish on me blamed some sleeper sharks that washed up in 2017 on me. And so I ran with it. I was, I started posting like dead fish from Cape Cod, like nine years ago as like, Hey, I went back in time and killed this. (laughs) And so then they started doing the shotgun. There's a picture of me holding a paddlefish in Kentucky. Yeah. And it kind of like a gun. And so they took the paddlefish out and put a shotgun in and then just, and I have an album full of them on my phone. It's like 43 of those pictures. <laughs> those would be great, like decals or stickers or like T-shirts. Some of those are hysterical. That's, yeah. I don't know. It's almost like an accomplishment in a weird way that you become like meme, like worthy material like that. So, and it's a cry and shame that people, I don't know. I've dealt with some stuff. I had like a little weird run in after I posted a Goliath grouper I'd caught a while back where it was put on bar stool, and I knew I was like, well, that's going to be go. a problem. That's going to be a problem. And so yeah. I was actually, ironically, I was out there fishing with Austin Anderson for Buffalo. And then I got a call by FWC and they were asking me about it, but you know, they let me know. They're like, listen, this is just something we got to close out on the books. There was a, com- a complaint, you know, from what we've seen, there was no issues. There's no problem. The fish is in the water, but I'd like gone to the comments. I'm like, I know exactly which one of you little turds did that. Like, I'm like, you know what? Maybe I just should hide certain, certain fish yeah. and just, not go down that road that's something that we've encountered and so i have a like a a canned way i deal with it and i'm sure if you read the post you'll kind of like i protect my butt a lot in the post language and how i present the fish like i'm really careful about photographs i'm really careful about i try not to take the wrong picture you know that's something that's really important and i learned my lesson really hard with the, the dolphin experience right and so that was that was a really negative thing that happened to us. And I, I want to document everything, like just like as a rule, like that's what I'm here to do is to document the experience. And that happened. And fuck me if I'm going to let that not get photographed. Right. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I was like, I can control this. These are my pictures. I'll just give them to the people that I think they should have. And like the people that I think would benefit from this. And it didn't, it bit me in the butt. Like the friends don't always stay friends and that, yeah. that got, and so I've, I'm even more careful now. And there's things I do. I give enforcement a heads up usually before something goes up. If I know it's going to be like a sensitive subject. Yeah. And most of them are sick of hearing about it. Most of them get the same report 17 times. Every time it goes up, they come from the same people. And so I, in some ways I feel bad, but in other ways it's like, if you fish as many days in the year as I do and you and you close out as many opportunities, like 
one of the like the sturgeon thing. If I go striper fishing, if somebody else goes striper fishing and they hook a, an Atlantic sturgeon, they're not going to land it because it's on striper tackle. If I go striper yeah. fishing, I'll make damn sure that whatever eats that bait is coming to the beach. That's my livelihood. And so that's how that stuff happens. And people just don't understand it because they fish their whole lives and that doesn't happen to them. But it does. And you just weren't ready for it. <laughs> you know, and that's literally like the whole story. And so I just do my best to cover my butt. And if when 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 I think it might be something super sensitive that people can get upset about i'll just say it was somewhere else and so those people can't get upset about it. yeah so like i get and, that i i had a i had i guess i i don't know maybe for about a month after that gold sturgeon thing maybe it was just a, an undue or unnecessary fear but i was like what if i like upset somebody like what if this is a problem but nothing came of it which is good but i mean to your point like you said you spent enough time with baits in the water during the course of the year, you're going to encounter things that bycatch or strange things happen. But yeah, I'm, I'm in the same boat. Like when those crazy, wild, unique things happen, I pull out the camera and I want to like document. I want to remember that. But, uh, but yeah, sometimes you got to worry about who's watching and wants to cause, I don't know, the internet police are a real interesting group. And I spent time in real police work. So it's like, you know, you kind of understand what has to be there for a case to actually be built. But uh, it's pretty sad. But. It is. It is. And it's, and what's sad is that I think the biggest thing that makes the saddest thing about it is that it, it's coming from inside. It's not, everybody talks about how it's, Oh, the green guy, the greenies or the, the vegans are like, that's not the enemy, man. The enemy is inside your group. Like it, it's your own people. It'd be yeah. your own. Like, and that's the saddest thing is like, these are, our people this is our audience this is the the reason we do this is for these people and then they do that and it really like makes you like makes you want to not do it anymore sometimes you know like i've definitely had days where i'm like man like all i wanted to do was catch a fish and now i'm some villain you know and yeah but i've been fortunate in that when the dolphin stuff all went down it actually like people tried to use that to like draw markets away from me and it actually tightened my hold on those markets and it really like brought people together yeah. dude you're being dumb like just the general response was like wow this guy is really a nice guy and this was this is somebody trying to make him out of way and it really that was uplifting and that really gave me like this boost of confidence that i felt like like that i took into this last year that made me like confident doing a lot of the stuff we did this last year because I knew that if people tried to portray it in a different light, that they would just get shut down. And that, that made me feel really good. And I feel like my audiences were fine. I've been doing it for 10 years. I feel like my audiences were fine enough now that those people aren't there to see it anymore. Yeah. Like the, Most of the people that are looking are probably more like me or just silently sitting back and, and watching without necessarily saying anything. I, I feel like that's the truth. The loudmouth people, even though they stick out the most, I think they're just dramatically outnumbered. So, yeah, it's that's a weird one. It's, it's it's a strange game to be in where envy runs deep or something. I don't know. It's a weird world. But anyway, uh, I know we're kind of 
running low on our time. I want to make sure though, like, I mean, you're running a business, you know what I mean? And, and you're drawing profit and I want to make sure that like, and I mean, I'm, I want to put the links up on all descriptions and everything like that. But like people who want to go and I strongly encourage anybody that's listening, you've got to check this guy's stuff out. Like where would they be able to find your content, like your website, your social, things like that? So the, the, the main website is terraformatackle.com. And that's Latin, T-E-R-R-A-F-I-R-M-A, tackle.com. Uh, and that's where most of the, the, uh, the innovative new stuff will be. And then a lot of the other people's stuff. I also support a lot of other smaller industry guys. And uh, I run another business called sharkfishingworldwide.com that focuses more on that stuff. Uh, other people's products, uh, big industry names, Jerry Brown, Tightline Braid, Abbott Rails, Accurate, Ella Technos. We, we you stock it all. Uh, it's a one-stop shop. But Terraforma Tackle is more like the pet project that's more the smaller, more technical stuff. And then the wholesale branch, there's any shops listening. We do wholesale leaders as well. And that's laneleaders.com. And then, of course, the Instagrams and the Facebooks, the Terraforma Tackle and Facebook and Instagram. It's both just Terraforma Tackle. Yeah. Yeah, well, folks got to check that out for sure because the, the fish is just astonishing, mind-blowing. Uh, I can't wait to see what's next. I'm sure it's going to be something crazy. Every time I think that you probably can't go much further than you did, you do, which is a scary thought. But uh, who knows? I don't know. We're, we're I feel like the circle is starting to tighten down. Maybe one day we'll be able to share the water together. That'd be fun. If you ever need another guy to, to, to help carry some gear or split uh, costs on a rental vehicle, Maybe I'll try to join up. That that'd be uh, that'd be that'd be a good time. Yeah, I mean, if you want to come out to California and do some fishing, you can come anytime, man. Uh, we'll get got everything out here. We'll get you on some big fish. That's for sure. Well, if I'm heading out that way, you'll be the first one that I contact. I may do like a family trip to California this year, but I don't know if I'll be able to find time to to fish. And I, and I don't want to put my nine year old and six year old in in the water with a great white shark. Scare scare them away from the ocean. Yeah. Well, all right, man. Well, I really appreciate your time. I know you've been sitting in that car for a while, probably not too comfortable, but uh, <laughs> I'll let you go. I really appreciate your time, dude. You got it. You got it. All right, all man. Righty.